The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by Spidey-Dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show if you like via patreon.com slash Network. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Network on Facebook is the General Network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout-out before we get started also as... To our two of our patrons, Scott and Venkman, thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and sitting to my left is my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And once again, we are joined by the co-creator of the show, the producer of the first two seasons, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we are very, very happy to have with us a man who this show wouldn't be the same without him, the composer of that exquisite soundtrack, Mr. Carl Johnson. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. And since you are 
Jess, we would like to ask you a little bit about your own origin story. How did you be- get into music? How did you become a composer for television and movies? Well, um, I had been a um, sort of a, a casual musician all through school growing up. I took piano lessons from the age of seven. I uh, played trombone in school, marching bands, pretty much a, a band geek. Um, but I had never taken music seriously. Um, I, my, my father was a, uh, a doctor. And so I figured I, I'll just become a doctor too. I was pretty good at math and science. And, um, so I, I ended up going to college doing pre-med stuff. Um, but I, I was in so many bands, uh, in college. I went to the university of Kansas and I was in the marching band and the concert band and the basketball band and the jazz band and, I was spending all my time doing music and I was having a hard time getting the, uh, like the school stuff in. <laughs> and, uh, so finally I figured, you know, I'm going to change my major to music. And, um, much to my surprise, I, I ended up getting a, a music theory degree from university of Kansas and, um, kind of what do you do with a music theory degree? Um, I, I was, uh, playing in a band in, in Disneyland, the all American college marching band. Um, I had auditioned and gotten into that. And one day I was talking to my, the band director about it. What am I going to do with a music theory degree? And he said, well, you know, you should consider doing film music. You know, it's a, it's a way you can be in music and, and maybe make some money, make a living. And so I looked into the, um, there was a program at that point, uh, the only program really was at USC. And so while I was in Los Angeles, I kind of looked at the guy who was running the program and, and talked to him and put together some application materials. And uh, the next year uh, after I graduated from Kansas, I went to the USC film music program. And um, I've just been fortunate. Uh, I kind of got into animation soon after school and um, have <laughs> kind of spent the the next uh, 30 years doing uh, music mostly for animation. I remember seeing your name in, so, in the credits of so many TV shows growing up, Animaniacs, Batman, the animated series. When, how did you, do you remember getting the Gargoyles gig and how did you design that beautiful soundtrack? Yeah, well, I had been at Warner Brothers. <clears throat> I was working on uh, Batman, the animated series and um, Shirley Walker was the the head composer on that. And um, Shirley was uh, an amazing mentor to a lot of people. Um, and she kind of, when she was designing what the soundtrack would look like for Batman, the animated series, she was really approaching it like a, a feature film. And so there were areas where it was just dialogue and no music and areas where the music was very moody or, or dark. Um, and so I kind of had that in the back of my mind when we were talking about gargoyles and getting it going. Um, so I, I think I was I was very much sort of approaching it from that angle, um, but also trying to work in the kinds of things that I really like doing melodies and and developing melodies and tweaking them and changing them based on what's going on with the uh, with the story. Um, I think I probably, uh, being a brass player, I probably brought a lot of my uh, uh, sort of 
marching band mentality to it. Uh, lots of brass, lots of percussion, um, lots of energetic loudness. And it was beautiful. We'll circle back to music questions because we also have an episode to discuss. Enter Macbeth, a rather pivotal episode of the series. And um, Greg, you've described in the past how this one was a game changer, and I'm sure we'll do that again. But I did notice that this also has the first previously on Gargoyle section, if you don't count the multi-parter Awakening. And what led to that? What led to it really was a disaster. Uh, we uh, got this episode back, and uh, our animation studio in Japan had subcontracted this episode out to um, Wang or, or Wong, another studio. And uh, this is without a doubt, uh, although there are other uh, that are competitive, other episodes that are competitive, but this is without a doubt the worst animated episode of the series at least in the first two seasons. And I came back in such disastrous state that we had, we couldn't make our deadline, um, our air game, which is the cardinal sin um, in uh, television, is missing your air game. But it was atrocious. And my bosses um, were like, well, just, how's the next one looking? And I'm like, the next one's looking fine. In fact, it was looking good. Uh, and so my bosses just wanted us to reorder them, put the answer that follows for this one. Um, and unfortunately, though, normally I would have said yes to that with some reluctance, but, but again, you can't miss an air date. Um, we couldn't. And the reason was this was the episode where the gargoyles moved from the castle to the clock tower. And in the episode that follows, they're already living in the clock tower. And I said, we will, our audience will be incredibly confused by this if we switch them up. So that I'm, so I asked, can we just, you know, run a rerun for a week? I said, if we have that one extra week, we should be able to get it done. And, uh, so they said yes, but Buena Vista wanted to, you know, didn't want to use one of the episodes that had just aired. That is one of the tricks that featured each member of the trio. So they decided to go back to the very first episode. But if you're going to do that, then that means it's not a one-week break. It's a five-week break because they then aired in session the five-week miniseries across the next five weeks. So by the time we got back to Enter Macbeth, um, we hadn't had a new episode of Gargoyles in, in six weeks. And uh, we felt that our audience may, I mean, the good news was is it gave viewers a second chance to sort of come on board with the show. But the flip side of that was that catching them up to where we were felt like it required previously. Um, and as I've mentioned on this show before, I was a huge fan of Hill Street Blues, The Lamb, and, um, Hill Street always did previously on Hill Street Blues. So I said, what if we just did? And we'd done it during the five-parter. So it wasn't that weird. So we just did a little set of clips uh, at the head of it to remind the audience uh, where we left off. And uh, and then rolled into it. And again, we had repaired the episode as best we could. 
but it still makes me cringe to look at it. They're um, awful animation, off model stuff, weird stuff. I mean, the scene where Goliath and Alicia confront each other at the end of the episode is, you know, horrible. <laughs> Goliath is shaped and sized ridiculously. His head is like four times the size of Alicia's. Um, and then, you know, you have weird things like a cartoon Iron Maiden that looks like it was pulled from an episode of Tales or something like that. Um, and frankly, it might have been, um, you know, it's kind of a cartoon cat head on it. It's bizarre. Uh, there was a limit to how much we could fix. And, but you'll also notice that in the credits for this episode, no one's listed as the director for the episode because it was just so many hands were involved in it. And you'll see a lot more uh, of names of artists who were in Los Angeles pitching in on this one because it was just a all hands on deck uh, emergency fix. So, and I'm saying all this negative stuff to sort of get it out of the way because I think there's a lot that's great about the episode but the animation isn't one of those things. So I'm trying to get all my major complaints about it off my chest so that we can then pretend afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I spotted a scotch tape on the screen at one point through the, in the episode. I sent Jen a screenshot right. last night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I didn't notice. Over 20 years later, there's still new flaws being found. And she and I were talking about that. <laughs> yeah, and she... Well, we're getting it out of the way now. And she and I were talking about that Iron Maiden earlier. <laughs> we were very, like, almost Cheshire Cat. It's very cute. Yeah, it's adorable. Just adorable. And that's what we were looking for from an Iron Maiden. An adorable Iron Maiden. That's what we <laughs> Oh, isn't it precious? All right. This episode was also written by Steve Perry, and I looked up his resume. He's written a ton of Conan novels, a few Star Wars novels, including apparently he was near the center of that 1990s multimedia Star Wars blitz called Shadows of the Empire. There was a novel, a video game, comics, action figures. Jen, do you remember that? Oh, yes, I do. I'm pretty sure I have a lot of those novels. <laughs> and he seems to collaborate yep. with, with Michael Reeves a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I think he was one of Michael's um, main go-to guys. Uh, I think I only literally met Steve like once in person, uh, even though he worked, you know, all through both seasons. But, you know, he was Michael's guy and um, and he did a great work for us. Well, I just, you know, he never, almost, or at least can't remember him coming into the office uh, more than like once. Um, but, uh, but yeah, great writer. And this episode introduces a, I think it's safe to call Macbeth a fan favorite. What do you think, Jen? Oh, it's, he definitely is. Like, okay, but how, but he's so different than the Macbeth that we are used to. Much more, like, I, how did you come up with this version of Macbeth? That was a conversation between Frank Parr, Michael Reeves, and myself. Uh, we were talking about, you know, creating a new villain for the show, one that we hadn't, uh, one that hadn't come out of the original development. But like up to this point, we had Xanatos, we had Demona, we had the pack, you know, we had done Dracon, which was our sort of, uh, 
mafia stand-in guy, right? Um, and we were talking about what other villain we might like to do. And and I said, you know, it'd be great to get someone who, in essence, was sort of Batman-like. So, you know, Xanatos himself is sort of Bruce Wayne still. Um, but we didn't have a villain who was sort of Batman-like. That is, someone who didn't have any superpowers, but um, just had mad skills and uh, a lot of tact. And so we're like, if, if we make Batman a villain, what kind of villain would he be in Garbage? And then um, I was saying that just pulling great if that he had... he's Scottish. <laughs> well, I was saying it would be great if he had some connection to, uh, you know, the gargoyles where they came from you know if there was something that he just not some random guy that xanatos hires but if there was some more intimate connection there and so you know what if he were this scottish king this medieval scottish king and then once you say medieval scottish king first name that came to my mind since i'm a Shakespeare fanatic is of course Macbeth. and then we were like oh that's cool because that's a cool name for a villain um and and we started very slowly, really, to figure out a bit of his backstory. And the idea that he had had some past history with Simona, which was another hint that he had been lying and, um, and that he had not simply... I mean, we knew that at this point that Simona had been alive for a thousand years, even before we... She hadn't been asleep, frozen in stone. Even before we did this episode, we knew that. Um, but we didn't, we hadn't come up with all the details of that. And, uh, so the idea was let's, you know, what if this actually is Macbeth, not just a guy taking on that name, but what if it's him and what if he's got a history with Simona and it all sort of moved outward from there. And then, you know, we cast John Reese Davies as Macbeth and he's so good in the role. He still got into it and he was just so wonderful in it um, that, uh, you know, there, there's all this great uh, need coming out of his performance to just give Macbeth more and more and more on the show because John is so good. Um, and that happened with us often. You know, we'd have some actor come in who just whose performance was so amazing that it's like oh we need more of this we need more of this person you know um and that happened over and over with us because our cast was so good um and it inspired all sorts of not stories for themselves at least motivation for stories nice john Riz davies i met him at new york comic-con a few years ago i got him to sign my copy of season one volume one of gargoyles it's either that or lord of the rings but i chose season one Volume one of Gargoyles. He had fond memories of the show. He really enjoyed playing that character. And he even he signed directly under where Marina Sirtis had previously signed it and he made a joke so that Demona can feel Macbeth's grip around her throat and then he laughed and said he actually loves Marina. <laughs> I was amazed he had remembered that much, but I was easy to love. I was amazed he had remembered that much, but I, I cracked up. He was a really fun guy to, to speak with. And I really enjoy his theme music, so this can bring things back around to you. Carl, thank you for waiting with that great bagpipe. 
theme. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I was thinking, uh, reviewing this episode, that um, we were doing this stuff in the uh, you know the early '90s, and finding a, a good bagpipe sound was not an easy thing back then. Um, you know, now we've got um, sound libraries and sample libraries and and uh a lot of that stuff is pretty easily available but but back then um it was it was very difficult to find a a usable bagpipe sound um and um it would have been nice to hire a live bagpipe player to come into the studio but um i was able to find a a a, a sound library that had um some good bagpipe stuff in it and it ended up working but uh i was just reminded about how Good. Carl, it might help if you talked a little bit about um, process. Um, I mean, uh, you know, nowadays when we do a show, we score the whole thing, each episode top to bottom because of the progress in, you know, sampling and, and uh, you know, it, it's affordable. But this show is mostly an orchestra show, right? And yeah. A lot of a lot of work was uh, libraried in essence. Um, so it might help yeah. explain the process a little. I don't think people out there really know what it was like in the nineties to score a show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's an interesting, uh, I, reviewing it last night, I was thinking, how did we ever get, <laughs> how did we ever get this stuff done? Um, there were some shows in the nineties that we were doing completely with live orchestra. Um, with uh, Shirley Walker's Batman stuff, that was all done with a live orchestra. Um, the uh, Animaniacs, all of that stuff, completely live. Um, but then there were um, uh, a, a couple of shows that were kind of a hybrid of electronics and live. And so uh, for Gargoyles, we had live brass section and sometimes live strings, uh, and then mixed that with some uh, electronic sounds. Um, so it was it was kind of this mix of of live and electronic and also uh just for for budgetary reasons we weren't creating completely new music for every episode and so um as we worked our way along the season some of the music that had been recorded for earlier episodes uh was getting edited in to subsequent ep- episodes um just to help uh kind of fill in the, the time um, because we, we didn't have enough uh, budget to, to completely create new music. And so watching this episode last night, there are a few places where um, the music editor, who's, who's a very talented music editor, uh, Mark Perlman uh, was doing this. And, uh, but he was pulling in music that I had written for a completely different, uh, a completely different episode and sometimes completely different situation and um, to my ears, it, it was a little jarring. It's, Greg, I think maybe similar to the animation for you that there are a few places where I kind of cringe and and it's the, the music maybe <laughs> coming in a little bit more gangbusters than I would have uh, written it if it had been something I'd written specifically for that episode. Um, so as the well, season went along, there were there was more and more of the score that was derived from earlier episodes. I was going to, when you said 
there were moments when you cringe. I just was going to say, welcome to my world. But um, <laughs> uh, but for this episode, uh, again, uh, there's definitely some library in here, but uh, but we did sort of pick this one out because of the introduction of Macbeth for you to sort of say, let's get some new material in here for this character specifically. Yeah. So what was, yeah. you recall at all what your thinking was about uh, not um, finding the bagpipe, but, but you know, what your thinking was about the mood you wanted for this character or the, the I, theme you wanted for him? I can't recall if... Years. Yeah. Um, I, I can't recall if at the time I was working on this episode, I knew where his character was going in later, um, in later episodes. Um, in my mind, whenever I think about Macbeth, I, I go to the, um, the city of stone, uh, uh, four parter, the, and particularly mm-hmm. part where, um, where he has to leave his wife and, uh, the, the weird sisters. Um, I mean, all of that stuff to me is kind of the culmination of, of the Macbeth story. And, um, I, I would like to think that I was trying to set that up in the first episode, but I, I think what I was doing was coming up with a theme that I thought would be usable down, down the line, um, without really knowing exactly how I was going to use it in the later episodes. Um, yeah, there's no way when you did this episode, we knew about city of Stodia. <laughs> but I, I wish I could say I had the arc all planned out in my head, but um, I, I think I was just trying to come up with a, uh, a theme that would be uh, would be useful later on. Yeah, but um, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Will, yeah, thank you. It um, and it's such an interesting character too. I mean, like you say, the sort of the 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 Batman uh, in the sense of that he's immortal, a, a mortal. Uh, well, I guess he's immortal too, but. Um, that he has weaknesses um and and that's always fun to to use as sort of musical inspiration indeed and it was terrific great music and exquisite soundtrack i'm going to keep saying that so i'm going to take a drink every time i do (laughs) (laughs) thank you i you know i also um there were a a few pieces of source music towards the beginning of it with they're watching a cartoon um and then um the guys kind of lounging around being goofy and i i think that's one of the few times in the series that we actually did stuff that was, um, I, I, I don't think we got a lot of mileage out of that, those cues subsequently. Currently I'm, I'm working on, um, a, a Looney Tunes series and, um, the source music that was playing during the, the little cartoon bit at the beginning of this episode <laughs> reminds me a lot of what I'm doing right now. So I guess life just kind of goes around in circles. It's come full circle. <laughs> nice. We'll circle back to you again in a moment. I loved seeing Elisa on crutches. Not that I love seeing Elisa on crutches, but early on, especially for me, the first time I was watching this, actions having long-term consequences. You didn't see that often, if ever, in a afternoon or Saturday morning cartoon, and it was great. Yeah, in fact, in that case, I think that the... Uh the delay actually helped us. Um, the plan, obviously, um, we were just going to say some unspecified amount of time had passed since she was shot in the previous episode. Obviously, it wasn't just a week later that she went from being shot to being walking around on crutches. Um, but so having that 
six-week span in between uh, Deadly Force and Enter Macbeth actually, I think, worked in our favor. You could, it was easier to sort of buy into the notion that, um, and I'm not even saying specifically it was six weeks in her life, but the point was time, it felt like time had passed. So you could buy that she was on crutches. It also, there's, again, the animation, sometimes she has two crutches, sometimes she has one crutch. Okay, she lost one. Oh, no, she's got two again. Oh, oh, she's got one. Oh, she's got two. Oh, she's got one. I mean, throughout the entire episode, the number of crutches, at some point, I thought, she's going to have three crutches. I just know. (laughs) But, you know, I think that helped us out. You know, we wanted to show consequences. And again, one of the ways that we were allowed at all to do Deadly Force was because we told Adrian Bello and our bosses, uh, hey, we are going to show the consequences of this. Next episode, she's not just going to pop up as if it had never happened. Um, and we actually put a line into Deadly Force about the bullet having hit her spine, because obviously she's not shot in the leg, um, which explains why she's, you know, needs rehab, why she's on crutches, all that sort of stuff. And even now I look at it and go, oh, wow, we did cheat a lot, you know, um, in terms of her recovery and everything. Um, but I guess in a relative world, you know, uh, we didn't show that she suffered from a lot of trauma, certainly nothing along the lines of, of PTSD or anything like that from the incident. Um, and I'd probably do it differently today and have the consequences be, uh, even more far reaching than we did back then. But for back then in 1993, 94, when we were making this episode, it was pretty revolutionary just the fact that we put her on crutches. And I'm proud of that, you know, uh, in its little way. I think it took cartoons a step forward a bit. Agreed. Yeah, there's so much, you know, just looking at it, you know, 20 some odd years later, there was so much about this series that was so far ahead of its time. Um it's uh, it, it, interesting how how far animation and episodic storytelling has come. Uh, I agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, we were trying to do some stuff back then that um, we hadn't seen a lot of, but we had all wanted to see. And uh, Gargoyles being in syndication and the bosses we had at the time uh, who um, both actively and sometimes uh passively because there were other things at the studio troubling them um letting us uh, frank and michael and i just sort of have free reign uh to do what we wanted to do gave us a, a unique kind of freedom um which even at the time i knew uh even though it was the first show i'd ever produced i knew even then this is a unique circumstance this is not, um, and, uh, I tried really hard to appreciate it in the moment. I didn't always succeed, but, um, you get day-to-day frustrations coming in, I suppose. But in general, um, it was just, uh, 
pretty unique set of circumstances that allowed us to try things that had not been tried before. Well, I think in general, you definitely raised the bar for animation. Like this really, the, I've always been an animation person. I was always a Saturday morning girl, you know, I always, even in high school, I was getting up on Saturday morning to watch cartoons, you know, but this was a whole different thing, whole bar that definitely raised the bar. And I, I'm much more harsh on the animated series I watch since then. Same. So it's good stuff. And one other thing um, that Greg, you could probably speak to this better than I, but it, it was really pushing the Disney brand too. At that point, there was almost nothing dark about the Disney brand. There was no Marvel universe or, um, anything along those lines. So it was, um, <laughs> it seemed like sort of a, an uneasy, uh, sort of fit with, with Disney. Um, uh, yeah, I, in, I, I think it fits in with their, like, uh, their feature stuff though. The Maleficence and the evil Queens and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that all has that dark feel to it. Um, but it just, just not the TV stuff didn't reach there yet. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think it, I agree. I think it fit in historically with the Disney brand, but it didn't fit in. Uh, it so didn't fit in uh, with the Disney Afternoon brand. <laughs> that, um, at the time, they didn't label that as a Disney show. It was Buena Vista Gargoyle. Wow. Um, Buena Vista being being Disney's uh, distribution arm. So it was Gargoyles. Uh, it was like you can see on the old Disney afternoon shows, it was Disney's DuckTales, Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. I mean, Disney was literally in the title to these shows. Mm. Obviously, from an alphabetizing standpoint, a lot of times you see people dropping the word Disney. But if you see the main titles of all these shows, Disney's Tailspin, Disney's Chippendales Rescue Rangers, the name Disney was always very prominent in front. It's not Disney's Gargoyles. People think of it that way now. Because since then, Disney has sort of been willing to claim it as one of theirs. But at the time, it was Gargoyle, period. Mm-hmm. And, and the show was not presented by Disney. It was presented by Buena Vista Television. Um, wow. So they were nervous about it, but they let it go. And, uh, and that was all we needed. <laughs> I didn't really care how it was labeled, as long as they let us do what we wanted to do. Um, but yeah, they were always, always a little scared of it, um, about what it would do. But I agree with Jennifer. I think historically it's, it's very much fits into the Disney brand. I just think that, you know, there came a point probably in the late seventies through the eighties into the nineties where what Disney meant had been reduced down to a lowest common denominator of playing it safe. And we were just starting to come out of that with movies like Great Mouse Detective and, and Little Mermaid and and Aladdin and, and Beauty and the Beast. And, uh, you know, the movies that sort of began Disney's feature renaissance. But, you know, if you go far enough back, there's plenty of dark material in hell, even in Snow White. Um, certainly in Pinocchio and, and many of the old films, Fantasia, you know. Um, yeah. There's well, I, I think that the, the the coachman from Pinocchio is like one of 
the scariest characters of all time. <laughs> so, uh, I guess you're right. Mm-hmm. And we also strove, you know, again, not a good episode to take as an example, though there are moments, um, you know, that the show isn't as dark. Uh, for example, and, and I mean that in a literal sense, if you look at Batman, the animated series, and this isn't a criticism, Gotham is a dark city. And I mean, don't mean that dark, like figuratively. I mean, literally, it is a dark city. They made a choice to have very little, you know, very focused, specific light sources. They made a choice to, in the coloring to keep the city very, very dark. And we made the opposite choice because for us, nighttime for the gargoyles is when they had come alive so we wanted a manhattan unlike gotham city we wanted a manhattan that was full of color at night they weren't pastel (laughs) um but it was blues and magentas and and neon red and and stuff like that to but that had that richness to it so that the show wouldn't feel dark in a, in a literal sense. Mm. Um, and I think that also helped. Um, you know, you, it wasn't, you know, dark stuff happens in these episodes, but it's not an, the overall feeling isn't oppressive. And a lot of that also comes out of Keith David's performance. Uh, and which I just want to, I mean, we gave all props to John Reese Davies, but I, I've got to give some props to Keith in this because this is a great example of Goliath in this episode, starting at point A, at his most stubborn, his most determined not to listen, um, to not make good choices. And then by the end, with some uh, grudging reluctance, he, he agrees to what Elisa and Hudson and Broadway are telling him. Um and then by the end comes to terms with it. And I just, you know, that transition from this bitter anger and resentment about having to give up the castle to the acceptance doesn't work unless you've got an actor of Keith Caliber, frankly, unless you've got Keith David himself in that role. I mean, you know, he is able to take us through all those steps of Goliath and we never lose sympathy with him even though he's clearly in the wrong at the beginning and stubbornly insisting on being in the wrong at the beginning. Um, and gets in Elisa's face again with the worst animation we had in the entire series, but gets in Elisa's face <laughs> furious at her and wrong. And yet we never lose sympathy for him. And, and, and uh, Steve Perry wrote a great script, but I got to say the credit, you know, really goes to uh the ability even when he's furious even when he's angry for us to feel for goliath and um that's what keith david brings you know i love that elisa never backs down from him like he's this huge imposing figure screaming in her face but she knows she's right and she's not backing down she wants them safe Yeah. And Sally's great too. This isn't a, she's not in a lot of the episodes, so it's not a showcase for her the way it is for Keith, but, um, or, or John, but, um, but Sally is always fantastic as well. And, 
Uh, again, our voice cast, the music, the color, all sorts of things often carry us when um, the writing, of course, when animation on occasion lets us down, which is what happens with this episode. The episode works because everything else is so strong that it sort of compensates for the lesser quality on the visual side. Goliath being wrong throughout the episode is one of those those things that I thought was a breath of fresh air because almost always in these action-adventure cartoons from the 80s onwards, the leader was always right. The leader hardly ever, or if ever, made any kind of mistakes because they were the leader. That's why they were in charge. I mean, uh, you had your Optimus Primes who were always right, your Leonardos who were always right, and... Am I off base here, Jen? What do you think? No, I don't think you're off base. It was you had your the, your your leaders that you put up on a pedestal, and did they did no wrong? There and, and like and you know when you're talking about Optimus Prime and stuff like that, you get to like they get to like godlike levels of always right. Saying when you have someone like Peter Cullen, who let's be honest has a majestic voice, I can see what, how that could happen. But so does Keith David. I mean, I, again. Um, the idea was never to put Goliath on a pedestal, never to make him perfect. He wasn't smartest guy there, um, but he was the moral compass. Um, at the same time, we wanted to have the flexibility for him to be wrong <laughs> on occasion and, uh, and to learn and to grow. And you see that here. There's also a great moment that I just wanted to point out um, you know, we, we haven't talked that much about it, but, um, you know, Macbeth's whole plan is really not about the gargoyles at all. He just wants to use them as bait to get Demona, right? Um, we see the stained glass window that shows him and Demona in it. I absolutely love that stained glass window. I, one day I yeah. will have it for myself. That's <laughs> <laughs> too bad we burned it in the fire. We right? To do right here. <laughs> A lot of pro- a lot of property damage on this show. I always <laughs> cringe at it now. Uh, as a homeowner now, I always cringe at all the properties. But um, you know, there comes this moment where where Goliath is just asking, "Why the hell are you doing all? I, I don't even know you. Why are you attacking us? You know, Xantos pay you well. I asked for money because if not, he would have been suspicious. Well, then why? You know, it's like I'm the, you're just pawn. You're queen." I'm after. And he's like, what are you like? What are you talking about? We don't have a queen. Oh no. What about Demona? And, uh, once I, he finds out that I've got you, the last of the gargoyles, he'll come get you. And Goliath laughs and you can see the origin of Thalog maybe right. I that. love that last. laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he tosses it, his head back and laughs at him. And it's a great sound. Um, and, Later, we'll get to it eventually. You know, in season two, we introduced Thalog, and, and one of the key things that sees everybody uh, to know that there's some other gargoyle running around sort of posing as Goliath is, yeah, I heard, we heard you laugh maniacally, and, Hud- and Hudson turns to Goliath and says, do you even know how to laugh maniacally? And I think by that time, We'd all like, no, of course, Goliath would never laugh maniacally, but he's laughing maniacally right here. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think down the road, I felt like I remembered it specifically, but I think down the road when when the idea of Thalog came out, 
came up, part of it was just like, Keith is so great. And we try to give him as much to do with Goliath as possible, but there's a whole range of things that he's not getting to do because Goliath is, in essence, such an upstanding guy, right? We want Keith to be able to have some fun and break loose. And that was, again, just, you know, the origin of a lot of the Macbeth stuff that followed is just how good John Reese davies was. The origin of Thalog, uh, which some members of your audience may not know who that is yet, but... Uh, uh, the origin of Thalog was giving Keith um, the opportunity with a different character to just cut loose. And I think maybe this last part of the reason. <laughs> um, and so you have this great moment where it's like, you know, Demona, know her. I named her. And you're like, what? You named Demona? Uh, and that was an intriguing thing that I am quite sure we didn't have the explanation for yet. Like we threw it in there. <laughs> Instead, we'll figure this out later. <laughs> They've got history. We don't know what it is, but there, you know, there's the hint. Nice. Right. Um, there are a lot of things we planned out in advance, particularly in season two, but uh, some things we did not plan out in advance, but we just knew it, there was always a feeling on the show like, um, you know, I compare it uh, to what at least legend says Michelangelo used to say about lots of marble that he'd look at the marble and he could see the statue inside and his job was easy all he had to do was carve the excess out uh, a way to reveal the statue that was already there and oftentimes working on gargoyles um it just felt like the actual storyline was there in the air or out there or in some parallel dimension or something like that and all we had to do was figure it out. You know, we just had to let it come to us and it would all come together. And this happened over and over again on the show where it just felt like, oh, yeah, that feels right. Of course, that's what happened. You know, that kind of thing. Um, even if we didn't quite know it at the time. Um, but, yeah, then uh, Macbeth says uh, a bit about uh, you know, this word, Demona, and... Uh, and Goliath just laughs at him. He's our enemy. She wouldn't lift the talon to help uh, us. And 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 Macbeth is just furious because his whole plan now is out the window. Um, and and his house is on fire. <laughs> his house is on fire by his own hand. Keith David said at a couple of the conventions that the know her, I named her line was a line that apparently in the booth the actors had fun with for quite a while. Uh, maybe, yeah, I don't remember, but I'll take his word for it. I think there's plenty of people. Street Pizza is the line. I remember people having a lot of fun with it forever. Which line? Street Pizza. <laughs> Elisa's line for pilot. You want to wind up Street Pizza? Street Pizza kept coming up over and over and over again. Nice. Well, know her, I named her. I'm sure there's a lot of fans with dirty minds who can fill in the kind of jokes they were making in the booth with that one. One of the things I found with Macbeth's reaction to all this is I feel like, based on what we learn about Macbeth later, he could have just easily let them go at that point. He does with the Scrolls of Merlin, but here he's so furious he accidentally burns down his own home. Problem. You let your temper go. Get away from you. (laughs) One thing, though, is that the theme of the episode was home. I mean, in those days, I don't really do this anymore. I, I've sort of lost interest. 
a lot of executives back then and even now sometimes, although not quite as often, will go, well, what's the theme of this episode? And that was a big deal back in the day. Uh, less so oh, now. So very say. clearly home. Yeah. And so it opens, you know, with Hudson watching uh, Quack Pack on TV and with Bronx and Lex and Brooklyn playing cards with at least five aces that I counted in that deck. Um, that one it doesn't bother me as much as the crutches because maybe Lex was just cheating. I don't know. But, um, and, you know, Goliath is in the library reading. And then you compare that with Xanatos being, uh, making his home in prison. Um, and then at the end, you know, it's all about, you think you can, Macbeth is saying to Goliath, I defeated you at your home. You think you can defeat me in mine, which of course Goliath kind of does. And then his home burns to the ground. So Macbeth loses his home because of his, uh, for his sins. And, um, and then, you know, the whole line that Hudson has is at home is wherever the six of us are. Note that they're not yet including Elisa in that. It's, you know, Goliath, Hudson, Bronx, and the trio. Too early in the series for them to view Elisa as, as more than just a friend and an ally. Although Broadway's getting there. You can see that Broadway is always, cons- after what happened last episode, he's always concerned for her safety. And he also, you know, in an argument between Goliath and Elisa, he t- immediately takes Elisa's side. Hudson needs convincing, but Broadway takes Elisa's side. Um, but, you know, so you see Xanatos return home, feeling good about being home. You know, there's some setbacks. We lost the grimoire. Fine, we'll deal with that. But right now, what's great is I'm home. And then Goliath coming to terms with the clock tower now being their home. Because all that matters is that the six of them are together and stay. And that's what home is. Um, and so that runs through the whole episode in a very conscious way. Um, and I think it proves it, although it can. I kind of, nowadays, when people talk to me, what's the theme of the episode? I, I, I have to check myself from rolling my eyes. Because it's just sort of like, <laughs> We're telling stories here with characters who have lives and stuff, and it's hard for me to worry about, you know, some overarching theme to the episode. I, I just, I, I don't know that that's significant anymore, but it worked here really well, and so I'm glad we did it. Nice. Before we circle back to Carl, there is uh, one line that I really like in this show. For some reason, it seems to cause fan, some fans... Again, just some fans, some confusion. Some new writer named Shakespeare. I've seen people go ballistic about that line, saying Shakespeare's not new, he's been dead for hundreds of years. And when you try to explain to them, oh, he's new to them, they don't seem to get it. I don't know how that could be misinterpreted. <laughs> Clearly, uh, Shakespeare was alive in the 16th into the early 17th centuries, but these guys are from the 10th century. So to them, He's new. Um, I don't know how else one could interpret that line. Um, I mean, it's fun. There's a little irony there for those watching, because, of course, to us, we don't think of Shakespeare as new at all. He's classic, right? But to them, he's new. Um, and I, but So I don't know where the confusion comes from. But, uh, but the fun of it, I guess, you know, the idea of calling Shakespeare a new writer is, you know, comically ironic. Um, 
but to them, it's just accurate. All right, and here's a question for Carl, not necessarily related to the episode, but what would you say is the biggest difference in composing music for film and television today as opposed to, say, 20 to 30 years ago? Well, I think the um, the the biggest difference is just how we use technology now and, and the kind of technology that's available. I, I was remembering that during the stuff in the 90s, um, this was before the Internet. Uh, really, I, I think I had an AOL account with a dial-up modem, and um, there was no such thing as MP3s. And so technically, everything that had to be recorded, um, you loaded players into a studio, you recorded them onto tape, uh, you mixed it back onto tape, and the tape went to the dub. Um, now, 20-some-odd years later, uh, and especially during COVID, um, You've got composers and animators and instrumentalists and mixers, and everybody is working in far-flung locations uh, all over the country, all over the world. And um, because of uh, data compression and high-speed Internet connections, um, we're able to move these enormous sound files and video files and um, enormous amounts of information instantly all over the world. And um, I think it's, it's really increased the quality of, of what we're able to do now, just sonically. Um, also the, um, uh, the, the quality of the hardware that we're using, the computers and the sound libraries, um, all of that um, has really, um, I, I think just in terms of the overall industry, improved the the sound quality um of of the final product um that being said um i I don't know if the same improvement has has happened with just the the pure composition part of it um it it used to be that um the composition process was kind of sitting at a piano and thinking okay what are the right notes and then how am i going to get those right notes realized um and now more of the effort tends to be okay what's the right sound and it doesn't really matter what the notes are but as long as we have the right sound it'll um you know it'll it'll carry the effort um but it, it it's interesting to me just the difference in how how the soundtracks get recorded now versus what we were doing in the early 90s now you've mentioned uh, a couple times the the sound libraries um is that something you yourself cultivate or is that the something the studios uh cultivate a little bit yeah, of both it, no it's it's completely on the composer um uh the I, I i'm not sure well with sound effects um generally the the sound effect studio or um uh there's some third party that's responsible for gathering sound effects libraries but for music and for composers um, it's really all on the composer to get their own machinery, their own computer, their own uh, mixing monitoring setup, and to to buy their own sound libraries. Um, and these libraries can be thousands of of dollars. And certainly, when you've been doing it a while, you've put over the course of years a whole lot of money into uh, sort of collecting different sound libraries from different sources um 
So it's a, um, it's a kind of, ex- it's not as expensive as having a boat or a horse. Um, but it is, it, you know, it's, it's kind of an expensive proposition to get into. And, um, so it, but it also kind of puts a, a composer's stamp on the final product, sort of, you know, which, which brushes the painter uses. It's kind of like which sound libraries a composer uses and which ones they, they sort of, uh, gravitate towards, um, so it's it's just for the sorry, just for the sake of clarity for the audience, I, I just want to distinguish between what you're talking about, which is sound libraries that has samples and all sorts of stuff in it between and and the music library that we talked about earlier. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. When when I'm talking about a sound library, I'm talking about uh, there may be a company who um, records a violin section and that violin section playing every note possible, and then coming up with um, software that allows the composer to put those recordings of the violin section together and make it sound like a real violin section. Um, That's the kind of sound library I'm talking about versus um, yeah. What the music editor was doing was creating a library of already recorded chunks of music that he could then slice and dice and put together in different ways and um, uh, support the action. But um, but yeah, it's, it's those libraries of specifically recordings of instruments and how those instruments sort of recreate what a live instrument would do. Right. And so on gargoyles, again, these days, because there's so much more, for lack of a better term, technical flexibility, we tend to record. Uh, I'm sorry, we tend to have our composers do entire. You know, new scores for an entire episode doesn't mean they may not reuse a theme here or there. They will uh, on an ongoing series, of course, but that's in contrast to what we did back on Gargoyles, which didn't have the budget for that, as Carl mentioned earlier. So Carl would record, I don't know, you know, uh, for the five-parter, you know, all these music cues for that. And then for some episodes, Mark Perlman did an amazing job, I think, at, at finding stuff that worked within those episodes to uh, from those previous episodes, from those existing cues in the music library, to score uh, an episode that we had no budget for scoring on, in essence. Um, and then an episode like this, it's a mixed bag. You know, there's some brand new cues here for uh, particularly for the Macbeth stuff, although not necessarily exclusively that, but there's also cues that Mark pulled from other episodes to fill in the gaps because we couldn't afford on the budget that Gargoyles was on to uh, score it from top to bottom. Um, And I, I totally hear what Carl's saying that some of the choices Mark made in this one are jarring. Although I have to admit that nothing Mark did wasn't uh, approved by Frank and I. So <laughs> it's not really Mark's fault. No one Mark taking the heat for that. Uh, uh, that blame for that has to go to me and Frank. Um, but well, and, and I, I just have to say, Greg, that there were some things that um, Mark did that I thought were brilliant, and I, I, I was like, man, I, I, I don't know if I'd have written it like that, but I sure like it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had. There's, there's just there's some great, uh, you know. Uh, 
Mark is in, in a lot of ways and one of the many unsung heroes on, on gargoyles. Um, and, uh, uh, but we don't use that kind of music editing anymore. Uh, yeah. in, at least not on the shows I've been working on for the last 10, 15 years. We just don't do that anymore. But back yeah. then we had to build a music library for budgetary reasons and rely on the music editor to, uh, to find a way to use those existing cues on new material. Well, and I, I think the, the economic uh, change has been that back then there really was no home studio and you couldn't record stuff in a, in a home studio like you can now, at, at least not broad, broadcast quality. I mean, I do remember not for this episode, but for the pilot going, I want to say to the Capitol records building, and watching you conduct the orchestra, yeah, first episode was it? Yeah, I remember the record. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I thought so. And uh, that was just one of the coolest days ever. And it was also, a day, you know, uh, you know, the whole idea of imposter syndrome, which um, even though I've been producing now for twenty plus years, I still suffer from. Um, but that was a day where. I was overwhelmed by imposter syndrome. I was the producer, you know, supervising this recording of Carl uh, conducting the orchestra and just thinking, I have, I, I can't say anything because I don't have, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I'm such a fake. If I open my mouth, they're going to realize this. Um, I have very cute memories of, of, um, well, I think in that case, it wasn't imposter syndrome. I was just a little kid playing and being a producer, I think that day. But, um, but it was also fantastic. I mean, it was just like, oh my God, this stuff is like coming to life. It is, it was so cool. Yeah, um, I think that's. I only. I only think I went with you one day. That was that one day when from the very first episode. But, uh, um, but I have very, you know, acute memories of that day. And, and yeah, that was fun. One. Yeah. And I have one. I have one sort of very clear memory of of that day. We. We had recorded all the brass and strings, and then we left some time at the end of the session to do uh, percussion stuff. And um, we needed a, a really interesting sound for the very opening frames of the main titles when the, um, you know, kind of the sun is coming up. And um, I had a percussionist there, and we had this big bass drum, and we were trying to come up with something really unusual. And he said, well, you know, I've. I've got a box of instant rice. Why don't I dump it on top of the drum and see what it sounds like? <laughs> he, he got this, this box of like rice aroni and we, we tipped the, the, this big concert bass drum. So it was flat and he dumped it on top of the head and then started hitting it with the, the bass drum beater. And it made this amazing kind of, uh, sound. And <laughs> I was like, yes, let's do it. That's recorded. Nice. <laughs> that was so, great. I don't think so, I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah. So the very first seconds of the main title, there's some rice aroni bouncing around there on the on the bass drum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
we'll come back to you in one second. There's a moment we didn't discuss, but um, it's that scene where Bronx is running down Broadway, the street, and Goliath just exposes himself in front of hundreds of people. You could not do that today without cell phone cameras immediately outing him to the world. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was a you know the the thing that dates the the one thing I think that dates this film more than anything else is the cell phone situation. I mean, we've talked about it. No one in this series has a cell phone except Xanatos, who's a billionaire, and of course Xanatos' cell phone is about the size of a large brick, um, and no one else has one. And so, yeah, that changes everything. But one thing that we that scene was very conscious. Michael and I talked about it, I, I remember, was, which was just like, the gargoyles aren't holding press conferences, but they are not going out of their way to hide themselves either. They're a fact of life. They are not going to, uh, you know, just be, uh, you know, they don't want anyone to find their home because then someone could attack them while they're sleeping, et cetera. But, uh, but they show up. Punks comes running down the street like, you know, Zool from uh, Ghostbusters or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and Goliath lands and and then Bronx takes off the other direction to to follow him back. And um, you know, Bronx with his very best lassie, Timmy stuck in a well impersonation, um, <laughs> done by Frank Welker. Um, which we felt was more justified because Bronx isn't technically speaking a dog. Um, he is uh, another species of Gargate. But, uh, you know, that whole thing, that it, this very public thing, of course, it happened at night. Back then, no one had cell phones with cameras in them, um, and no one knew that was coming. Uh, so it was just sort There's of... There's also a lot of property damage left behind as Goliath gets up into the air again taking out signs and cars and stuff. Yeah. You know, lots of property damage. That's the thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, we, we decided, cause obviously, you know, Bronx could have shown up in an alley or something, but we were like, no, let's make this public. And cause we want that feeling to be part of the show that, that yeah, you know, 20, 25 people saw him that night and they're calling their neighbors and stuff like that, but no one can prove it. You know, so it becomes this sort of urban legend that there are gargoyles around the city coming to life. Um, and that was going to be part and parcel of what we were uh, doing with the show. So it was very conscious to make that a, a public scene. Nice. And um, another question for Carl. What would you say is the biggest challenge in writing music for film and television? I think for me, the the biggest challenge is uh, sort of the everydayness of it. Um, when you're working on a, a series or, or even a like feature or something, um, it's it's not like the the composer is taking walks through the woods and trying to come up with ideas, you've got a, a set number of amount of music. You've got to come up with a set amount of time. And I, I have known composers who are kind of procrastinators. And um, if you put it off to the very end, it, it becomes a nightmare for everybody involved. So um, I think the challenge is trying to approach it uh, with some sort of uh, 
sense of discipline in terms of scheduling and um, trying to keep on task. And for for me, it's it's a very um, uh, it's kind of a, a head game, just trying to keep focused and keep myself in a position where I can focus on the work and get, get it done. Um, uh, that I think is the biggest challenge. Just it's, it's a marathon and, uh, sort of a mental marathon and finding ways of, um, keeping, keeping the pace without just completely burning yourself out. It's interesting because that's exactly how I describe the writing process on a theory is, I mean, I am without a doubt a massive procrastinator by nature, <laughs> but I'm a, what you call a deadline writer. You know, in other words, if, if I don't have a deadline on something, it may literally never do time. Um, but I don't miss deadlines because you got to be professional. And so that means breaking a project down into manageable slices on a nightly basis. You know, yeah. usually when I'm producing, I don't have time to write during the day. I'm producing during the day. So from writing or editing, that's all taking place at night. So I just chop anything I'm working on, whether it's an outline or a script or a rewrite or whatever, into manageable nightly pieces. Yeah. And because otherwise you just, you would, you'd get overwhelmed and, and, uh, and it's a marathon, you know, you're doing, you know, we did 13 episodes in season one of Gargoyles, 52 episodes in season uh two typical young justice season is 26 episodes that's a lot of material to get through um and it takes time and if you look at it like oh my god i've got 26 episodes to write or compose or whatever it's overwhelming so you slice it up into pieces so that you can make it across the long haul and and what i what i have to do is is literally um come up with a, a number of minutes per day that I have to accomplish. And um, depending on the, the show or the, what else is going on, it may be anywhere from I have to write a, a minute of music to sometimes I've had to write five minutes of music in a day. Um, but uh, you have to break it up into the bite size kind of bite size chunks and, and keep up with it daily. Um, Greg, there was a, something you said earlier too. I wanted to circle back on talking about air dates and the um you know the cardinal rule is that you never miss an air date um and it's it's just interesting how much uh the industry has changed now with uh streaming and uh right. the concept of air dates and even of seasons um you know nowadays a season could be eight episodes um and the when it actually gets released to the streamers seems to be a little fuzzy um and uh, it, it, it's interesting now that um, that idea of having a, an air date and something's got to go up <laughs> onto the onto the the antenna tower at the right time uh, just it, it's completely lost now. Yeah, I think for I the think better. True. Yeah, mostly for the better. I mean, what's interesting is watching the studios pivot to this new system. Mm-hmm. So. You know, a lot depends on what streaming service. So if you're Netflix, it's like we're putting up an entire season or at least a half season up at a time, which means it's not enough to have your first episode done and your second episode done because 
hey, I could have another couple weeks for the third one, right? Because no, you got to have seven to eight episodes ready to go. Um, whereas uh, uh, streaming service like uh, Disney Plus or HBO Max are, is, and they're, they're exceptions to this too, but they are tending toward still doing a, let's release a couple episodes up front and then one a week. And I like that better for water cooler talk reasons. And because I, again, I think one of the virtues of serious television is, is um, that ability to think about something before you move on to the next chapter. Um, yeah. But, but studios don't quite know how to deal with that because the streaming services tend not to make a decision about how they're going to release it though until relatively speaking, the last minute. Yeah. And so they still schedule for reasons of budget and man hours, etc., as if there's an air date only there isn't. So, you know, I've had moments with studios where I'm like saying, um, Hey, we just need another couple weeks on this one episode. And they're like, no, you'll miss your date. And I'll be like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because the earliest this could possibly drop is such and such, you know, and they'll be like, but you'll miss your date. And I'll be like, in the aggregate, we'll catch up, but this one needs a little more time. So you're going to air it out of order. I'm like, no, that's not necessary. None of them are airing. They're dropping. And, <laughs> you know, and you have these discussions where, in essence, the old modes are still present um, in terms of scheduling and budgeting, even if they're they're not based on reality anymore. There's no actual, like, oh, it's got to be done by then because it's got to go on the air. It, it's yeah. the same. And... Um, and I've been working for big studios most recently. I mean, uh, Warner Brothers and Nick and, uh, and others like that. I don't know if things are, are more flexible at a more, a smaller independent studio, but I know in terms of these, um, bigger studios, there, there's some growing pains to shifting the system. And it doesn't help that some series are still, it's not airing on, you know, broadcast. They're airing on cable that hasn't basically still has air dates and a cable schedule, you know, and some are going to streaming. And, and so, you know, there's some inflexibility there. That's a holdover from the old system. Um, sometimes when it doesn't need to be, uh, but yeah, back in, you know, back to gargoyles back in the day, it, it wasn't any question. We had date, we had to get, um, and when we didn't, that was, and we'll get into this more in season two, but when we didn't hit those dates, uh, that was considered a, a major screw up. Um, and, uh, and we were usually punished for it in one way or another. <laughs> Question for Carl. What is the biggest difference between composing freely or under your own inspiration and composing for film and television? Well, it's kind of like what Greg said. Um, if I don't have a deadline, I can't get anything done. Um, I, it's very, very rare that I write something just for myself, um, like a piece of concert music. I, I have written um, a fair amount of musical theater stuff just because that's something I enjoy doing. 
Um, but even then, it, there's a deadline. We, we've got a, a showcase or a, a you know something that it's got to be done in time for. But if it's uh, if it's something that I'm just writing for myself for the fun of it, I can almost always find something else more pressing to do, um, whether it's laundry or <laughs> anything <laughs> rearranging my, you. <laughs> yeah, you know, re, rearranging the, uh, the cupboards or something. But um, uh, if if it's a if it's a project for film or TV, then you know somebody's paying me to create music on a schedule, and that that takes precedence. So um, I, I I guess I've just kind of gotten to the to the place where um, I do need to have a deadline of some kind to get anything done. Um, I have a question. What is what is the project that you feel most proud of? Like what's what's your like crown jewel the uh, your top thing that you've worked on well obviously the answer is going to be gargling other other than that other than gargling absolutely i was thinking it might have been you know something he won an emmy for or something (laughs) well i you know i i i'm this is going to sound like like a, a wimpy answer but i'm proud of everything i do um or at least i try to make it all professionals some projects you know are have a lot of good karma and and tend to good things tend to happen and other projects sort of seem cursed from the beginning but um whatever i do i try to make it uh i try to make it professional and as good as as i can given whatever the circumstances are um, I, I think there are moments um, of different projects that I'm I'm more proud of when I look back on them um, like that. We were talking earlier about the um, the city of stone thing uh, and that moment in part four. I, I when I look back at the Gargoyles series, which I'm very proud of, I think that's one of the moments that uh, comes to mind first. I remember working on that and trying really hard to get as much emotion in into that as possible. But, um, you know, I, I, I was also, I was pretty young, uh, working on that in my mid twenties. And, um, I, you know, I think as any writer, I feel like the older I get and the more experienced I get, the, the more craft I develop and, so it, it always seems like my most recent project is the one that I, I feel like I've had the most uh, confidence and, and, and craft that I could bring to it. So um, I, there's kind of a, a, a saying in the, the music industry that you're only as good as your last eight bars. Um, so you know, <laughs> I, I generally feel like the last eight bars I wrote are the best ever. But um, <laughs> when I go back and listen to them, sometimes they're not. Legit. A silly observation, which, Greg, I think you'll appreciate. We've talked a little bit in the past, and we're going to talk about that when we get to Her Brother's Keeper even more, about how you and Kenner weren't necessarily the best partners. Macbeth makes a big deal right away that he would not stoop so low as to attack the gargoyles while they slept. Then Kenner releases the action figure, and his weapons are pile drivers. They're they're the sort of things quarrymen would carry, designed to smash stone. Uh, Yeah, you know, I I think uh, 
Tenor was very helpful to us on a lot of levels. And um, I, I don't want to make it sound like we were bad partners. I just think that we, you know, they had what they felt they needed to do to sell toys. And we had what we felt we needed to do to make the show the show we wanted it to be. And sometimes those things intersected well, and sometimes they intersected okay, and sometimes they intersected poorly. Um, and that's too bad, but it, you know, it, in those days in particular, the nature of the beast was that toy sales helped pay for the production of the show. So it's sort of hard to get like, oh, if only we hadn't had to deal with Kenner. Well, if we hadn't had to deal with Kenner, then we wouldn't have had a show at all. It's like people who used to, uh, after Gargoyles was canceled, get really mad at Disney, which I understand on one level, but I'm like, you guys do understand that if it weren't for Disney, you wouldn't have had the show in the first place. You know, um, and so I always feel like, uh, you know, you have to maintain some perspective. Um, you know, it's not like Frank and I always saw eye to eye. We ultimately always saw eye to eye, but there were some clashing uh, that took place to get us to the eye to eye spot more than once. But, you know, you sit there and you go, oh, if only he hadn't had to deal with me or I hadn't had to deal with him. Well, it's ridiculous. Obviously, the show wouldn't have been the show without both of them. And so I, I always, you know, want to measure that stuff, not because I'm being politic, but just because it's true. You know, it, 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 uh, it's a whole symphony since we're, How's that for a metaphor of the day? Uh, it's a whole symphony of of people who have to work together to produce something on uh, the level of gargoyles. It's literally hundreds of people doing hundreds of jobs um, in multiple countries. Even back then, nowadays, you know, with the way the technology works, um, you know, we don't even work out of an office anymore. We're all at home, you know, with the pandemic. Uh, but it, it just requires lots of amazing things to happen uh, in order for anything, anything to get produced and for something to turn out at a level where 25 years later, you're still talking about it. Um, that's a lot. I mean, in Watchmen terms, that's a thermodynamic miracle. You know, um, it, it, and it and any little thing could have just blown it all away or, or or reduced the overall quality of the show to a level that this podcast wouldn't exist, you know, because who who the hell would care Argoyles twenty five years later? Indeed. I think we can begin wrapping up. Jen, do you have any other questions? Oh, I think think we're doing good. All right, before we do, I want to shout out to a friend of mine because, Greg, you mentioned imposter syndrome earlier. When we started scheduling the interview with Carl, I got really nervous because I don't know much or anything about music. I just know what I happen to like, so I had no idea what kind of questions to ask. So I reached out to a friend of mine, Ron Oppenheim, who is a professional musician. I've known him since middle school. We used to watch Gargoyles together after school. Almost every day, he's has fond memories of it. He's a fan. He's I feel so old. Yeah, he's not a fan the way that I'm a fan, but he's still a fan with some fond memories. And um, it was nice to so he wrote up a list of questions that I could ask Carl, and 
I do appreciate that. And he's working right now as a professional musician in Vienna. Nice. Well, tell him thank you. Well, Carl, you being here has been a delight to this former band geek. I'm so happy that you were able to come onto the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. What a joy. This is a, this is a lot of fun. It really was, Carl. We really do appreciate it. This podcast will be going up in early April. So do either any of you have any projects you would like to plug? Well, I, I am in the... Uh the home stretch of finishing up Looney Tunes cartoons uh, for Warner brothers. And um, I've got uh, probably another four or five months left of work on it. Um, HBO max will be releasing it in uh, chunks. I think over the course of this year, I'm not sure uh, when the last release is going to be, but it'll, I, I, I think be during calendar 2022. And um, uh, I, I think, We've done good work on this show. It's been a lot of fun to sort of go back to my pre-Gargoyles roots of um, cartoony sort of uh, underscore. Um, but, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for it on uh, on HBO Max. Uh, and then for me, also on HBO Max, uh, if this is April, when you're hearing this, then uh, by now uh, – the second half of the fourth season of Young Justice, Young Justice Phantoms, should be dropping weekly on uh, HBO Max, even as we speak. Not really as we speak, because we're speaking back in February. But uh, when you hear this, time traveling in April, in yeah, take the Phoenix Gate and start watching. Uh, and then uh, by now. By now, it'll been out for a few months. But if you haven't picked it up, uh, please. Uh, uh, take a look at the Blu-ray or download uh, Catwoman Hunted, which comes out February 8th, which for us in the art time era is just a few days from now. But uh, for you guys, it'll have been out for months. But if you haven't checked it out, please do. Uh, it's an anime-style movie that I wrote and stars Elizabeth Gillies as uh, Catwoman and uh, Stephanie Beatrice as Catwoman and um, has a lot of uh, former Gargoyles actors in it, including Keith David and Jonathan Frakes and uh, and others. So please do check it out. All right. And Jen? I don't have anything big and beautiful going on, but I might have snuck some Gargoyle stuff up on my Redbubble. And you can find that through uh, uh, my website, heyassbutt.com. Hey, assbutt. And... Uh, there might be, I might be sneaking some more stuff up by the time this airs. Excellent. <laughs> and I want to thank you all once again. Carl, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for that exquisite soundtrack all those years ago, which keeps us captivated to this day. I mean, they say a, a movie or a TV show is only as good as its soundtrack to set the mood. So thank you for that. And, well, thank you. And Greg, thank you for all your time always, for everything you do. Jennifer, perfect partner in crime. Let's do crime together again soon and always. always. <laughs> and, and to all of you who are listening, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next time for The Edge, where we hope to have a surprise. <laughs>
know her. <laughs> I may. 